Welcome to The Common Rounds, medical education for medical students by medical students. Hello and welcome to The Common Rounds. My name is Hamid and today we'll be covering our first cardiovascular topic, which is dyslipidemia. What is dyslipidemia? Dyslipidemia is a state characterized by abnormally high fasting lipids. A typical scenario would include an elevated low-density lipoprotein, LLDL, high triglycerides and decreased high-density lipoproteins. Classification can be primary or familial, and these could include familial combined hyperlipidemia, familial hypertriglyceremia, or it could be acquired or secondary due to excess dietary fat intake, hypothyroidism, and nephrotic syndrome. Before we talk about the pathophysiology of the various processes, let's cover a bit of basic physiology. So chylomicrons are formed in the intestinal epithelium from dietary fats. They're hydrophobic cores and have an outer hydrophilic phospholipid layer. Apolipoproteins are found on the outer surface and are important for interaction with various cellular components. They consist of mostly triglycerides and have some cholesterol as well. Chylomicrons enter systemic circulation by the way of intestinal lymphatics, and once in circulation, they interact with muscles and fats. The lipo and apolipoproteins on the chylomicrons can activate lipoprotein lipase, and LPL removes triglycerides from chylomicrons, breaking down the triglyceride into fatty acids, which can then be utilized by muscles and fats and the tissues. Now we have a remnant chylomicron, which is high in cholesterol and that is then taken up by the liver. Another um, physiological component you might experience or might see in your readings is very low density lipoprotein. This is synthesized by the liver and supplies energy to the body by transporting triglycerides to muscles and fats, where LPL again causes the release of the VLDL content. VLDL is similar to chylomicrons but smaller and contains less triglycerides and more cholesterol. VLDL's function is essentially analogous to chylomicrons. Once VLDLs are broken down by the lipoprotein lipase, you form intermediate density lipoproteins or IDLs and these are considered the remnants of VLDLs. They still have triglycerides and some cholesterol and approximately 50% of IDLs are taken up by the liver via LDL receptors. 50% remain in plasma where they lose their triglycerides and become low density lipoproteins. Low density lipoproteins as you can imagine are formed from IDLs and low density lipoproteins are comprised of cholesterol only. They provide cholesterol for the synthesis of hormones, cell membranes and bile acids. Two-thirds of LDLs are taken up by by specific LDL receptors. LDL receptors is present on all cells, but our highest concentration can be found in the liver. Approximately one third of LDLs though are scavenged by monocytes or by smooth muscle cells. LDL receptors, they can be downregulated when dietary cholesterol or saturated fats are high. They are downregulated by increasing or advancing age, and they can be upregulated when their dietary cholesterol or saturated fats are low by estrogen, by thyroxin, and by HMGA-CoA reductase inhibitors such as statin therapies, or when there's decreased Increased bowel acid uptake from the intestines. High density lipoproteins are comprised of protein and phospholipids with little cholesterol or triglycerides. They take up cholesterol from cells and transfer this to intermediate density lipoproteins or LDLs and facilitate the removal of cholesterol and fat via the liver. When high density lipoprotein level is low, it can lead to ultimate changes to the way VLDLs and chylomicrons are processed and can lead to hypertriglyceremia. So why do we care about dyslipidemia and patients that have elevated cholesterol levels? Well, hyperlipidemia is a major risk factor for atherosclerosis, which can lead to cardiovascular disease. Atherosclerosis is characterized as an aggregation of fats and cholesterol within the arteries. 
So this lipidemia causes endothelial dysfunction, where LDL is deposited in vessel walls, becomes oxidized and stimulates an inflammatory response. Monocytes circulating in the blood vessels enter tunica intima, which is the first layer of the blood vessels, and become macrophages. Macrophages attempt to ingest the oxidized LDLs and become foam cells and ultimately undergo apoptosis to form a necrotic core. At the same time, you have growth factors being released, and these growth factors stimulate smooth muscle hyperplasia and migration to tunica intima, and hence the growth of the plaque. Production of extracellular matrix also takes place and you form this fibrotic plaque which has a thrombogenic core. The inflammatory process as well as the growth factors can also lead to platelet activation which induces further inflammation and adhesion of the platelets and hence thrombus formation. And so you get this progressive narrowing of the affected vessels and if there's a rupture of the plaques formed that can lead to complete occlusion of the artery and distal ischemia or reduced blood flow. So in terms of signs and symptoms of dyslipidemia they can vary depending on the presentation. So primary causes of dyslipidemia can lead to tenderness, xanthomatosis, arcus cornelius, xanthalasmus, and pancreatitis because of the high circulating lipid concentrations can block blood flow to the affected organ. Patients can be often obese and can have premature cardiovascular disease. And in terms of diagnosis, our differential diagnosis mainly relates to assessing whether this is a primary cause or whether this is a secondary cause of dyslipidemia. Before we talk about investigations, it's important to also understand screening. According to the Australian College of General Practitioners guidelines, adults age 40 five years and over should have their fasting lipids checked every five years but this really depends on the cardiovascular risk assessment so for patients that have a low risk so a cardiovascular disease risk of less than 10 percent we can provide lifestyle advice and monitor their lipids every five years for those with moderate risk or 10 to 15 percent of cardiovascular disease risk we can provide some intensive lifestyle advice and if lipids remain elevated then considerations for pharmacotherapy may be warranted and we also monitor their lipids every two years for those with high risk we not only provide lifestyle advice but also start lipid lowering therapy straight away and we monitor their lipids for every 12 months. In terms of some of the investigations aside from fasting lipids, if indicated to rule out secondary causes, we perform a thyroid function test, we look at fasting blood glucose and the HbA1c, we perform a liver function test, blood electrolytes looking at renal function and urine analysis looking at proteinuria to rule out nephrotic causes. From a treatment point of view, the first approach will be to encourage non-pharmacological approaches such as increased moderate intensity of exercise, smoke cessation, limiting alcohol intake, limiting saturated fat and salt intake. Pharmacological point of view, the first line agents are the statins. These are HMGA CoA reductase inhibitors. They upregulate LDL receptors, decrease LDL and may decrease VLDLs and slightly increase HDLs. They have been shown to decrease mortality, fatal and non-fatal vascular events as well. They can lead to deranged LFTs, myalgias and elevated creatinine phosphokinase and very rarely rhabdomyolysis. Second line agent would be ezetimibe, which inhibits intestinal lipid absorption. Alone, they can decrease LDLs by up to 17%. With statins though, it provides an additional 14% reduction in LDLs. The combination is associated with increased rates of myopathy and it's unclear whether it actually prevents cardiovascular disease endpoints. Another second line agent would be your bile acid resins and these agents prevent reabsorption of bile from the intestinal tract. They can lead to decreased LDLs slight increase in HDLs and upregulation of LDL receptors in the liver by increasing pro processing of LDLs for replacement of lost bile acids. They may increase triglycerides because of the increased VLDL synthesis by liver, possibly to replace the reduced LDL to help supplement the cholesterol needs of the body. Triglyceride-lowering therapies can be uh, adopted for the treatment of hypertriglycemia. These include agents like the phenofibrate or the fibrate agents, which have been shown to increase the activity of lipoprotein lipase on VLDLs, thereby decreasing VLDLs and increasing HDLs. They haven't been shown to alter cardiovascular disease 
disease endpoints, such as non-fatal myocardial infarcts or cardiovascular death. Another less commonly used agent is a nicotinic acid, and acid has been shown to reduce triglycerides and LDLs by blocking the production of VLDLs. It's most effective drug for increasing HDLs, and it's been shown to reduce cardiovascular events, but has lots of annoying side effects, such as flushing, hyperuricemia, and insulin resistance. So now, once we have patients on lipid lowering therapy, what are our goals? Particularly for primary prevention, we should aim as tolerated by the patient for a cholesterol of less than 4, HDL of greater than 1 micromoles per liter, LDL of less than 2 micromoles per liter, and triglycerides of less than 2 micromoles per liter. So this brings our talk to an end. If you have any questions or would like to get in contact with us, reach us through Facebook, Twitter, our YouTube account, and our website. episode today was put together by our executive producer Gautam and our co-editor Cindy. For notes, elective experiences, and much more study resources, visit our website on thecommonrounds.wordpress.com or visit us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. If you like our episodes, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. It means a lot to us. You've been listening to The Common Rounds. I'm Hamid. And I'm Andy. And we'll see you next time. See you next time.